as I finished chapter 11 last week, and I'm just going to do a couple of Psalms this week and next week, and then pick up the book of Acts again. I've chosen Psalm 32, Blessed Forgiveness, to sort of recalibrate what the Christian faith is all about, and not forget exactly what God has done for us, and just to know how sweet it is to be forgiven. I really believe if we forget, and we will, you will, I'm pointing the fingers at you, because so will I. We're going to forget the happy state of being forgiven. We're going to forget of just how joyful it is and the price that was paid for our forgiveness. That we can sit here and, and, and worship Christ and know the joy of genuinely being divinely forgiven by God. And uh, you know, to have eternal life and eternal joy. And so I chose uh, Psalm 32, if we turn to it. Oh yeah, Terry has something. She's handing me a note. I love you very much. I will do anything. I will cook, clean. Praise God. Psalm 32. Most of us are familiar with Psalm 51, David's prayer of forgiveness in need of God's grace after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband Uriah the Hittite. We're familiar with Psalm 51. We're familiar with that cry of, of, Oh Lord, restore me to what? Do you remember the rest of that verse? Restore me to the joy of my salvation. He was praying for, to blot out the wickedness of his crimes against God, a God alone that he sinned against, and he was crying out for a clean conscience. Uh, scholars believe that 32 is a follow-up to Psalm 51. We're going to see the answer to that prayer. We don't see the answer to the prayer in Psalm 51. We hear the cry and the request to be as white as snow again and to, uh, to strengthen him with a willing spirit and a, and a cry of restore me to the joy of my salvation. But Psalm 51 doesn't see a fulfillment. Psalm 32 does. So as we go through the text and we go through the psalm, see what happened to that prayer of Psalm 51 when it was fulfilled in David sometime later. I'll get into that when I get into the context of the scripture. It wasn't always immediately. We would like to have that instant joy of knowing forgiveness right away. But sometimes it doesn't happen that way. Sometimes God in mercy allows things to drag on until we see more clearly again. Uh, the, the timeline between... Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, we really don't know. But in experience to all Christians, sometimes it takes a while to really look back and say, God, you've been so good to me. And that's my prayer as a pastor tonight, as we take a look today and we leave this room remembering how good God has been to us. So let's read Psalm 32, starting verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me, 
You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or you will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, like always, of your goodness towards us. I thank you that you use David's life, that we can reflect on our own life and what you've done for us, Father God, and how blessed it is to be forgiven. There is no greater blessing on this earth than the joy of knowing that we are genuinely and always forgiven of every sin and every transgression that offends you to the utmost, God. Let us never take sin lightly. Never let, us t- never let us take the heavy hand upon us lightly, Father God. For you will always discipline those who you love, Father God. You will chastise that man and that woman you love so much and call child. So, Father God, remind us of the joy of our salvation. Restore the joy of our salvation, Father God. And let us know the blessed condition of a confession, a confessional heart. In Jesus' name. Amen. Calvin cites this in this psalm, that nothing can be more terrible than when God is our enemy. When God puts his thumb on us, there's no way you can run. There's no way you can hide. As David says in another psalm, if I go to heaven, your hand is there. If I go to Sheol, your presence is there. You cannot get away from God. There are times in the Christian's life when the merciful, gracious God pulls away all his mercy and all his grace. And he gives us a conflict of conscience that's tormenting to our soul. Otherwise, we will not move, we will not budge. There are times when God comes into our life and says, we're going to deal with this once and for all. You should be shouting for joy. Because left to our own accord, we won't do it. And we're going to see this in David's life tonight. This is one of the penitential psalms, there's 13 of them. It's a song of repentance. And we don't want to forget that. This is a genuine song. This is set to music. This is set to tone. It is to bring to it's to bring a, a greater emphasis into the truths that are represented in the psalm. As I said, Psalm 32 was written sometime after Psalm 51. If we to try to in a chronological way, David sins against Bathsheba. In a short while, he kills the husband, and then for a year. David is living as what our psalm says, your hand was heavy upon me. I was drying up as though in the heat of summer. He he was crushed on the inside. For a full year, David was was indifferent to everything about him. He He was emotionally dead for a year. Until we know what happened, the prophet comes to him and speaks to him and rebukes him. 
and, and lets the cat out of the bag. And, and David sees his sin. He sees that he is the man. And, and he cries out. And he writes Psalm 51. And he cries out to restore me to the joy of my salvation. Restore a steadfast spirit to me. Make me whiter than snow. I can't stand my guilt. I can't stand my shame. I'm, I'm trying to hide from myself. I, there's nowhere I can run. There's nowhere I can hide. Please be gracious to me, God. Nathan tells him that God will not hold us against him. His sin is forgiven. But now Psalm 32 is some time later. We don't know. Is it a month? Is it a year? We're not sure. There's a time of reflection has set in. And David's really reflecting on that whole time of his life. And how good God was to him. How undeserving he was. And I just start with some application right away. Do we as Christians often meditate on how gracious God has been to us? Do we ever recall certain things we've gone through in our life and to realize that I cannot believe I'm standing here today? I'm a minister of the gospel by God's grace. There are others that could be saying, I'm a husband now, or I'm a wife now. And I have a job, and I have a position in society, or I have children now, and I have money in the bank now. I have health restored to me now. I remember who I was, and how bad it was, and how bad I was, and look where I am now, and how great this is. The truth of the matter is, we should all have a psalm in our heart. I'll speak a little more about my own personal life when we get into into the text, but... This is what's going on now. David is putting to song what he's been thinking about for some length of time about God's goodness to him at the worst time of his life by his own self-inflicted wounds. Only God can do this. A couple things we need to know. This is the king of Israel. He's hanging out his dirty laundry. You have to remember something. Kings weren't meant to be superhuman. There were only types of Christ that come. They had their failings. But they were instruments of leadership. And in, 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 in Israel, the king was the moral leader. It wasn't the prophet's job, and it wasn't the priest's job. The priest was to intercede to God on behalf of the people. The prophet interceded on behalf of God to the people. But it was the, the king who was the leader, who went out amongst the people. The king was the representative. He was, he was the moral teacher of Israel. The king was held in, in high esteem. Where the king went, the people went with them. If the king's heart was wicked, if the king's heart was failing, understand something. The whole nation followed. When you look at the whole Old Testament, where the king went, the people went with them. He was a high example of morality. But they were human. They can only be at best be types of Christ. They were only mere shadows of the perfect king who was to come. But there were also examples of a repentant heart. This is model. This is David modeling. And as we get into the text, we'll see that David turns into an exhorter. He turns into a pastor. And he's encouraging, if anybody's in the same situation I was in verse 3, 4, and 5, get out of there and run to God who's forgiven. And that's what he's saying. That's what I do as a pastor. Because I know what happens over time, people forget. And shame, and that's what David's dealing with. We'll get into the text. Shame. Shame becomes a high, thick, barbed-wired wall that surrounds us, and we don't even know how we got there. You ever see a mime, a really good mime, and it looks like they're trapped, 
You know, it's, it's sensational. There's nothing there. You know there's nothing there. But to the mind, it's like the walls are collapsing in on them. And, and that's what shame is. Shame, you don't see it. But you can feel it. And it's there. And it's like, you, you, you really say, help me. I got to get out of here. But the walls are, are encompassing me. David knows that feeling. Pastors and ministers know that feeling. And we want to make sure that if you're in that situation, that's what David's doing here. He wants to remind everybody, come to God. Don't allow the wall of shame, I'll deal with this in application, to encompass you to the point where God has to put his heavy hand upon you. Before we go into the text, we have to remember two things here. There is experiential forgiveness. That's what our text is talking about. And there is provisional forgiveness. You know the difference? Provisionally, we are as we never sinned before. That's hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, I know what what today brought into my life. I know what last night brought into my life. I I know what life brings. But positionally, because of Christ, when we're first born again, we're first regenerated, we enter into this this wonderful world of forgiveness. And you're overwhelmed. You just can't believe I'm I'm really forgiven, you know. And, 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 And no guilt and shame tries to cling on to you. You just, you're overwhelmed and you know you're forgiven and you can't believe it. You don't understand it, but you experience it because every time you pray, you feel God's presence. Every time you sing, you feel God's presence. Every time you confess your sin, you feel like you're forgiven. You feel hopeful. You feel joyful. You feel peaceful. You feel content. Even in the midst of your repentance, everything's fine. That's what God gives us when we're saved. But then there's the ongoing times of struggle in our life. The experiential from day to day when we have to go to Jesus and get our feet washed. Doesn't he teach us that? And we got to get our feet washed, you know. And, and that's what David's dealing with here. He's not dealing about ultimately being forgiven. He knows that. He's dealing with the unrepented sin in his heart. And how God deals with that. And as Christians, we can fall and you will. I will tell you, you will fall into a place in your Christian life where time's going to go by and say, oh my goodness, I don't know if I've dealt with this properly. And hopefully you'll remember this, this sermon. But this psalm doesn't start in verse 1 and 2 like many of the psalms. The psalm really starts in uh, verses uh, 3, 4, and 5. But I broke it down this way. I'll deal with it in five segments. There's a proclamation of blessing. That's verses 1 and 2. I'll get into that later on. But I'll start with David's personal example, his sin. Move into exhortation with personal testimony. David's warning of resisting God's instructions. Uh, He turns into a worship leader. It's a call to praise God. And the sixth element I'll speak about is Jesus in this psalm. And as I said, this psalm doesn't start in verse 1 or 2, but it actually starts in verse 3, 4, and 5. So let's go there again. Let's read verses 3, 4, and 5. <clears throat> David says this. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Follow with me, okay? That whole year when I was silent about my sin, and I kept it from God, and I kept it from Nathan, and I kept it from all my counselors, even though the whole nation knew about it. It was a horrible year. My bones wasted away all day and all night. 
through groaning. For day and night, God, I realized that year, that miserable, miserable year, your hand was heavy upon me. So much that my strength was dried up like a heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave my iniquity and my sin. He actually attempted to hide his sin from God. The omniscient God, to whom, as Hebrews 4 says, to whom we have our due. There's nothing that's hidden from God. Everything is laid open and bare before the eyes of him to whom we have our due. David is trying to hide adultery and he's trying to hide murder from God. How in the world could someone try to do that? I'll give you an example. No, I won't give you. I'll, I'll tell you how it works out. When you try to hide your sin from man, you're tempting to hide your sin from God. That's the first rule. Remember that. You're trying to hide your sin from men. You're attempting to justify it or rationalize it or hide your sin from God. That's why James tells us to do what? Confess your sins to one another and be healed. He's trying to hide his sin from God. He's trying to hide his sin from man. Somehow, way, he's even trying to hide the, the hideousness of his sin from who? From himself. He cannot bear to think of what has taken place. He has done everything to hide his sin from God, from man, from himself. He's employed himself with other things. He's entertained his thoughts in other ways. He's preoccupied his life, as many of us do, with nonsensical amusements. All along, trying desperately to avoid the unavoidable. Confession. A genuine confession to God, a genuine confession to man. You know, David, like other people, some people endeavor to divert their minds, their thoughts from this painful, painful subject. You're trying to kick the can down the road. You're trying to say, God, I know you're merciful. I know you're And you're kicking this down until you can't kick the can down the road anymore. Something has to be done. Some will accomplish this cover-up for a short period of time. David, somewhere in that year, probably thought he was getting away with it. But it turns out, it got worse. It'll always get worse before it gets better. That's the deceitfulness of sin. We have a psychosomatic thing going on over here. I mean, even psychologists and therapists and and, and psychiatrists understand that guilt and shame were not done away with, not even in a spiritual sense, has a psychosymatic tendencies. Depression can set in, and all sorts of other things can set in when people have not dealt with the past properly because the conscience is tormented by guilt and shame. The conscience is God-given. It is a faculty of the soul that that 
distinguishes between our acts. It, it's, it's a sort of umpire between our acts and our words and our deeds and our actions. It evaluates who we really are. It's a constant reminder that we need to get right with God and get right with man. And when that conscience is not cleansed, then as a Christian, we will live under the heavy hand of God's torment. He will, he, will, he, will, he will try us in the most real ways in this way. He will come down heavy upon us. And that's what David has experienced. He tried to hide his sin from man, from himself, and from God. And all he got was God's heavy hand. As Calvin said, the last thing you and I would ever want is have God as our enemy. You cannot go toe to toe with God. You and I will lose. Greater men than you and I have lost. David has lost. He was a man after God's own heart. But in this case, he's fighting against his own maker. He's not going to win. He's tormented on the inside. And tormented, I'm sure David for the first, who knows, month, two months, two months, it's that low voice, that, that low tormenting voice that you're trying to put away, you're trying to hide, you're trying to suppress it. And, but the voice gets louder and it gets louder because he's a Christian man, he's a believer. God is not going to allow him to hide from his sin because something has happened. It's not about the sin at this point. His fellowship with God is broken. God's a jealous God. The Bible teaches us that clearly. And he longs for the spirit he's put in us. James chapter 5 teaches us that. God longs for fellowship. And if sin, unrepentant sin gets in, then God has to step in. Because he longs for the fellowship. He's tormented on the inside. The voice is growing louder and longer and stronger. It's starting to kill him. He says this in verse 4. Day and night your hand is heavy upon me. When did he have his aha moment? When did it come to be that it was God that was tormenting him? God treats his children this way. As we said, he always disciplines those he loves. This heavy hand of God is relentless. Day and night, as in the heat of day, all his energy is sapped up as a 100 degree day in 100% humidity with no air conditioner, no breeze, no shade, no water, no nothing. Just relentless upon him. God is a jealous God. He's not intimidated by sick David's sin. He's not intimidated by your sin. He's not intimidated by my sin. He's not the parent that gives up on the wayward child. He's not the parent that gives up on the rebellious child because they just can't take it no more. He doesn't give David an iPad and go go play in the corner and watch videos. No, he goes toe to toe with David, his son. He wants his affections and his affections he's going to have no matter what. Even if he has to make David's life miserable, he would have made it miserable not just for a year, but for a decade and the rest of his life until David woke up and had his aha moment. He's not giving up on David. He loves him too much. He's fighting for his affections. He wrestled with Jacob. He wrestled with Paul. He wrestled with Peter. He wrestled with David. And he'll wrestle with you and me. He went eyeball to eyeball and face to face against the rebellion that was in David's heart. This is not a God that gives up easy. He's not going to send his son to the cross and then give up on us when we're in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our sin. He's going to fight with David, and he did. 
verse 5 says, he acknowledged his sin. If we're going, if we're tracing this psalm to Psalm 51, as most scholars believe, and the situation in David's life with Bathsheba, this was his aha moment. He knew what he did. He knew he broke a whole bunch of commandments. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He tried to cover it up. There was many things, but he acknowledged it. He came face to face that you can't suppress it anymore. He knew fully through the rebuke of Nathan, through the word of God, opened up his eyes to the fact that it was his sin is why he felt that way. Why he was going through physically in his life what he was going through because it was sin. He had an aha moment. This is God's blessing of desperation. We know that through Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step programs that many times there's desperation that gives people to cry out and ask for help from God. And David has this. I acknowledge my sin. He could have said, after Nathan rebuked me, I, I really saw it. I was suppressing it. The sin was so horrible that I couldn't even bear to think about it myself, God. I, I tried to run. I tried to hide. I, I couldn't think about confessing. I didn't want to, to, to acknowledge it myself. But I received the rebuke from the Lord. I finally acknowledged. I take ownership of it now. He knew it all along. He's not acknowledged. Oh, oh, you mean... That was adultery? I had no idea. Oh, you mean I murdered Uriah the Hittite? I had no idea. Of course he knew what he did. He's genuinely taken ownership of the sin. I've acknowledged it. It's my sin, God. I finally know it. I'm finally aware of it. This is my aha moment. This blessing of God. He's, he's close to this inner death. Uh, uh, verses 3 and 4, if we spent some more time on it, we went through a, a word study of it, and each word talks about this inner, inner peril, this inner death, this 24-7 dialogue or monologue that was taking place within his own conscience was tormenting him. He says, I did not cover he was covering it. Because he said, when I, was, when I kept silent, your hand was heavy upon me. But now he's not covering it up because he received the word of God. He received the rebuke. He had his aha moment. He's taken ownership of all his sin and all the consequences, all the ramifications. He's finally looked up and said, I have blown it. I've blown it. I've, I've acknowledged it. I own up to it. I can't cover it no more. I can't, I can't keep silent anymore. So he openly confesses. And we know it's not just a confession to God. It was a confession to those who were in his life. At the lowest part of his life, He's rebuked by the prophet, a.k.a. the word of God. He cries out in Psalm 51. He needs a restoration. We don't see the restoration in Psalm 51, but when we get to verse 1 and 2, we see, as he says here, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. 
blessed. And blessed is not, this is not some kind of passive blessing. This is, this is a very exuberant, happy human being. This is like Psalm 1, blesses the man you know, who confides in the word of God. This is, understand something, this is man who's jubilant. He, he's, he, he, he's exploding with joy and happiness. He's not saying, well, you know, I'm a pretty blessed guy. You know, I'm too stressed to be blessed. It's not, not this kind of... He's like, this is great. I'm finally free from the inner torment when I tried to hide my sin. I wasn't acknowledging it. I, I, I was trying to avoid it and suppress it. I was trying to make it like everything's fine and everything's good. God's a forgiving God and we're just going to go a long life over here. But it wasn't that way. God had to step in and what he's saying now, I just can't believe how blessed I am as a human being. I am so free from guilt. I am so free from shame. I'm, I'm, I'm so enlightened on the inside. I'm so in love with God. There is no greater place, there's no greater blessing than the man whose sins God does not take into account against him. This is a happy man on the inside. And it's not just the presence of God. And it was. It's, 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 it's free from the bondage of the guilt. It's free from the bondage of shame. It's free from the bondage of inner torment. Night and day of self-loathing. The sin he once concealed, he says, is now covered. He sings the song of redemption. He sings the song of forgiveness. He's overwhelmed with lightheartedness. He's overwhelmed with peace. Joy is back in his heart. Hope is back in his heart. Peace is back in his heart. He has restored fellowship with God. That's the most important thing. He has restored fellowship with Nathan. The prophet was his friend. It was his private counselor. The last thing Nathan wanted to do, have to stand and go face to face with the king of Israel and bring him to his own sin. It was his friend. You know what that means? He had no fellowship with his friend for a year. When you are living in sin, when a Christian is living in sin, the last thing we want to hear anybody do is say, let's pray. Let's have a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting. I'm struggling on the inside over here. I'm tormented day and night by God's heavy hand. And you want to have a worship service? There's no time for singing. The conscience won't allow it. And you know what else there's no time for? Genuine Christian fellowship. Listen to 1 John. Chapter 1. Yeah. If we say we have fellowship with him, that means God, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. You see, understand something. When you have a group of Christians who are walking in the Spirit, that's like a rebuke to the sin still in us. There is something that won't allow a genuine believer who's living in sin, unrepentant sin, who's keeping it from God, keeping it from themselves, and keeping it from other believers, and that's entering into fellowship. You can't do it. You, you, you want to hide. I'll move fast to application. That is why it's so 
it is so important to be part of a local church. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. I think it's Proverbs 18 says that uh, the man who separates himself seeks his own desires. You know, but when you're in a Christian church and you got fellowship and you got friends, you know what? You can't hide too long. And that's the way it's designed to be. Husbands and wives should understand this dynamic. Pastors should understand this dynamic. Christians should understand this dynamic. We should have that. You know something? Your soul wants that. You want the fellowship. You want to be there and say, I got to tell you something. That's when the wall of shame can come down. Remember that big wall that you can't see that's closing in on you? Fellowship is so important. This man is blessed. He's got fellowship again. David's fellowshipping again. He's worshiping. He's going up to the temple. He's going to hear the Lord expounded. He's going to hear the Lord sung. He's going to hear, speak to the prophets. He's going to hear, uh, hear a word from the Lord. He's, he's back in fellowship. As a matter of fact, he wants to tell everybody, if you're struggling, come to the Lord. He's a forgiving, merciful God. Verse 6 says he goes into an exhortation. He's exhorting the congregation. Listen to verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. So now he's exhorting them. He's exhorting believers who are in similar situations, believers who are wrestling with shame and, and guilt and, 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 and the deceitfulness of sin and, 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 they, and they're going through this and he's encouraging them, come to God! And, and this is where the, 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 New Testament, the Old Testament falls short because I always say this, anytime I'm preparing an Old Testament text to preach on, I'm like, you know, as good as this is, the, the New Testament says everything better. It says everything better. What we and I say is, you're in trouble. We got a merciful, faithful high priest who's been tempted in all ways. Go to him. Go to the throne of grace. He's there, wide open. If you need grace when you're weak, and if you fail, go to him. He'll give you mercy. Go to the throne of grace. You see, whatever the New Old Testament says, the New Testament says much more magnificently. And it always points to Christ's finished work. He's our advocate. But he has to. This is what happens to the free conscience. It's now exhorting others in similar situations who are wrestling with sin and wrestling with shame and the beguiling the nature of sin itself, how cunning and baffling it really is, and he's encouraging them. What grace! What patience! What a pastor's heart! What hope! What leadership! What courage! What reality! This is reality. See, we can come up here and we can preach and we preach the ideal of the precious blood of Christ and we preach the ideal of being led by the Spirit and we preach the ideal that you you can do whatever you want in Christ Jesus who strengthens us. We can do all things that nothing's impossible with God and if you're led by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And we preach it! But when the preaching's over, we've got to step down to another reality that some people aren't there. David knew that. You think David was the only one in Israel struggling with sin? Verse 7 goes into a personal testimony now. It's not just about an exhortation. Listen to his testimony. 
You were hiding place for me, God. You preserved me from trouble. He could say this, you're finally a hiding place to me like you used to be when I used to take down the Goliaths of my life. You were the place for me. You preserved me from all trouble. Even when Saul was trying to take me down, but my sin got into me, your hand was heavy upon me, you, you, you weren't a refuge to me anymore. You, you were my enemy. But now he's saying, you're my hiding place again. You preserved me from trouble, from being in a safe place with you. You preserved me. What a personal testimony. From deep grief and sorrow by God's heavy hand. Now God is his refuge once again. That's restored fellowship. Do you not know? You don't miss this, what David's saying here. David's saying is this. While David was suffering under the heavy hand of God. Before he acknowledged his sin and took full ownership of sin and all its consequences, and he suppressed that reality, and God's hand was heavy upon him day and night, understand something. He had no joy. He had no fellowship. He had no hope whatsoever. He was trying to live life by his own strength. That's miserable. It's miserable. Trying to live like you're going to go out here today? Are you going to go to work this week? Are you going to fight the temptations of a summer in New York on your own? You're not going to make it. See, that's one of the other consequences of unconfessed sin. It makes you weak in every area of your life. Amen. Once the door is open, a whole flood of other temptations can overtake you. He goes to verse 8, 9, and 10 now. Before I read him, I want you to listen. He goes from the sinner, the unrepented sinner, to the blessed saint. Then he went to be an evangelist. Then he went to be an exhorter. Now he goes to be an instructor to the foolish. Listen, 8, 9, and 10. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you like the king's supposed to do. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and brittle, or will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. He goes to be an instructor now. See, he's warning others do not resist. God's inner work of harsh grace. I don't want you to miss that. Don't resist God's inner work of harsh grace. We always think of grace as what? This fluffy sort of, oh, I can do whatever I want, and just God just picks up my mess. No consequences. I just, you know, I have a cavalier attitude of sin and I just do what I want to do and then God's going to pick up all the pieces like Humpty Dumpty. This is great. This what a Christianity. What kind of God is this? That is not what's going on over here. What are you saying here? Don't resist God's harsh grace when God's hand comes heavy down upon us because he wants to do something with us because fellowship with him has been broken and fellowship with other Christians. That, for God, that's zero tolerance. Once fellowship is broken, God's heavy hand. It's coming. And it'll be on his day and night. 
And he gives this metaphor from the animal kingdom about a stubborn mule or a horse. You see, they'll follow you, but they need to be trained really hard. They need to be beaten into what? Submission. They need to be trained over and over and over and over by harsh and whips until they're trained. They say, don't be like that. David could have said, I was like that. Nathan the prophet had to come save me. I was like the mule, he was saying. I was like the horse. I was stubborn. Don't be like that. David's in a great place to be an instructor now. You see, he's encouraging people to be open-hearted and tender and spontaneous to God's rebukes. You know, I can move real forward now into the New Testament and, uh, and what John says in 1 John chapter 2, I write to you little children uh, that you will not sin. But if you do sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, David's not right here, don't sin. David's saying, when you are in sin, go to the Father. He's gracious. Don't be like the mule. Don't be stubborn. Go to him. Run to him. Run to the throne of grace. He's more than willing to forgive you. Like I said, whatever the Old Testament says, the New Testament is superior in acknowledging that same truth. And at the end of it all, after being a saint that fell into sin, to being a saint restored to fellowship, become an evangelist to others, become an exhorter to other Christians or other Jews at that time who were in similar situations, to be an instructor. He's now a worship leader. Listen to how he leads worship. And remember something, all worship, this is the foundation of all worship. Genuine forgiveness from God. Listen to verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. So are we to think that I'm rejoicing because we're perfectly righteous? Is this sinless perfection David's talking about? Are we perfect and righteous in heart because there's no sin? Is David saying that? No, he's telling the Jews who could be struggling with the wall of shame, you are righteous through covenant. You are righteous through God's covenant through Abraham and Moses. You are now the children of Israel. You belong to God. He's made a promise over you. You who really believe this, you who have submitted to God, but you fell into sin, understand something. Rejoice. He's a forgiving. He's a merciful, gracious God, filled with mercy and compassion to a thousand generations. You know, when it comes to application, forget it, I can have I can application all day long on this. But you have to remember, sometimes we can read the Old Testament and we hear, you, read, you think everybody was running around sin, sin free. The Old Testament saint is no different than me and you. They struggled, they were tempted by the culture, they were tempted in everything around them, they were constantly tempted, they were constantly fallen, and David, the moral leader, of the kingdom is calling him back to repentance that God's arms are wide open. You know why? Because shame will lie to you and shame will lie to me that we 
are unworthy of his love. And years could go by with a lack of confession. And this is what happens. As Christians, the importance of sitting under the word of God. Because when someone gets into this position spiritually, and the shame has been built up, and they can't confess, they can't even acknowledge the consequences of this, and not just the act, the consequences of Bathsheba, the consequences of Uriah being murdered, the consequences of the whole nation suffering because of the sin failure, the consequences you couldn't even acknowledge. When this kind of wall of shame builds up, we could really think that God will never forgive us. And I'm here to tell you the same thing David said. All you who are upright in heart, all you who are righteous because of the covenant of Jesus Christ and his precious blood, there's nothing that God won't forgive in your life. But what we need sometimes is to be stimulated, like David was stimulated, not by the prophet. He was stimulated by the word of God. And that's all we have today. We have the word of God. And my hope and my prayer as I preach this and meditate on it and, and I reflect on my own life over the years and what God has done is this. We need to hear this because I know as a man from personal experience and through scripture that shame is a formidable foe. You can't go toe-to-toe. You can't. You need to be stimulated. The word of God gets in there. It empowers us to confess, and that's what David did. David confessed after he was rebuked. The word of God rebuked him and reminded him of his love. Then he confessed. He took ownership. God's heavy hand. How do we feel about that? Make us uncomfortable? It should. That was one honest answer. We sing about his love and his redemption all the time, but if God didn't use a heavy hand to us, we'd never change. And that, that fellowship, that sweet fellowship with God, where is our strength, because the joy of the Lord is our strength, that very thing we need is fellowship with him has been broken. So let me tell you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, why there were many who were asleep at Corinth. There were many who were sick in Corinth. There were many who were weak in Corinth. There were many who were dying in Corinth because their hearts were not right with God in taking the body and the blood. It's in the New Testament. right? That's why James says, confess your sins to one another and what? James' mind was filled with Psalm 32. James' mind was filled with the Old Testament. Understand something about New Testament writers. They had a keen understanding of the psychosomatic consequences of sin. That it can make you sick. God's heavy hand is a grace. And praise God for it. We live in a world of perfectionism. We live in a world of hiding our weaknesses from one another. We live in a world of putting on the mask every morning we get out. And the truth of the matter is people, especially public figures like David, are are petrified of personal confession to share that I, I fell. Everybody thinks that we got our act together and the last thing a leader would want to do, a parent would want to do, a husband, a wife, a pastor would want to do is say, I failed. 
years and decades can go on in people's personal lives into these smaller things that should have been easily confessed, but because they're carrying around a perfectionist attitude and God forbid somebody knows something about me, I don't want nobody to know I'm a private man, I'm a private woman, we, we can't tell these type of things, and all of a sudden these cracks in the foundation of our faith become crevices and life falls apart. I've shared on this many times about many pastors that fell into sexual sin. It did not just happen. Something was taking place and it was unconfessed. They didn't acknowledge it. They didn't say, I need someone. And it just puts me to this last point when it comes to uh, living the Christian life. We have to have, I'm telling you now, do not leave this room until you make an oath to God that you will have one or two people in your life you can share every dirty thought with. Listen to me. Every dirty, filthy thought, every act, every impulse that the old man wants, you have to have someone in your life to say, listen, I need just to talk, that's all. This is what's going on. This track record that's going on too long now. It's, it's turning into a decade that I haven't told anybody. You have to have, and that's the church should be that way. That's why James says, confess your sins to one another. You have to have that. We have to have that. Please hear God speaking with your eyes closed today. Please do not let David's experience, Father, I pray for myself and everybody in this room, don't let David's experience that he shared so openly with us fall on deaf ears today, Father. Let us not be like the horse and the mule who has to be trained severely and harshly to do anything obediently, God. God, let by your spirit and confession to walk in the spontaneousness of living in the spirit. Help all here today, Father God, who are struggling in any area of life that think they can't share with somebody. I just pray, God, that we start living like a family of men and women in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can speak to one another and share with each other, God, and have our sins healed in Jesus' name.